This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You are experiencing a multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. That's right. This is N-P-E-T. And I pause so you can wonder what all those letters signify. We are Nuestra Palabra Extraterrestrial. Why? Because our live events became a radio broadcast, which is referred to as Terrestrial Radio on 90.1 FM KPFT, your community station. But we are many other platforms now as well. So you will experience this live on social media. Thanks for joining us. And you will experience the video on fox26houston.com. The audio will air on 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston's community station. And I have to remind you, dear listeners, if you have a moment, please do try and review your budget and see if you can make a donation to the station, which is listener-sponsored. If you visit kpft.org, please click on the donation button and make a donation in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Your Say, so we can do our part to keep this amazing experiment and freedom of speech going. And, of course, we're going to wind up visiting you live as well. I'm Tony Diaz, El Libro Traficante. I'm the author of The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. Today, we are really happy to welcome a figure who has really, really blazed a trail for our community at the upper levels of the scientific community, educational community. He has made a national impact. He's got a great legacy. I'm proud to call him a dear friend. Uh, it's Dr. Richard Tapia from Rice University. First, I want to applaud you. I want to welcome you. I want to give you a big hug. Thank you so much for, for joining us and for all that you do, Richard. Really excited to get to talk to you today. I'm excited to, uh, to talk. I like to talk about things that I love and I care about. And I grew up in this country. I was born and raised in this country. And so I've gone through a lot of life and I've gone seen a lot of things happen. I mean, uh, you hope at the end of your life that you say, ah, I've made a difference. I've understood it. And that's what I want to do. I want to say my legacy is such that I grew, I learned, and I made a difference. I gave back. And so when I talk about myself, I love that. When I talk about the book, okay, the book that we're going to talk about, okay, this, this, you know, it's losing the precious few. So, I mean, I love talking about the book and I love talking about myself and I like talking about, you know, Latino issues. And uh, I grew up very active in, in the era in the middle 60s in the Chicano movement. So it's all a part of my soul, a part of my being, okay? And so, so I'm happy for that. And it's something that I didn't read about. It's something that I lived. You know, sometimes my son asks me questions and about music or about those times. And he says that, you know, 
it's not something that you read about. It's something that you lived. Okay, and that's and that's the way I talk about these issues. In fact, and somebody can say you're wrong. Not when I say, but this is what I experienced. This is what I lived. This is what mm. I went through. Okay, so it's me. It is me. Okay, and that's that's what I'm gonna say. So, no, and I. I know, and many of us know, that you have made such a difference. That's why it is great that we get to talk about your book. And I'm going to say the, the name several times. Uh, Losing the Precious Few, How America Fails to Educate Its Minorities in Science and Engineering. And this is actually so timely uh, because of what's going on regarding issues about diversity um affirmative action is back under scrutiny but right. also because you're from our community and i do want to give folks a little bit of a formal introduction to you because i want them to know your trajectory but i also want them to hear of some of the different ways for them to pursue a life of excellence in the sciences. So if you allow me, uh, I do want to tell the world that Dr. Richard Tapia is the Maxfield Oshman Chair in Engineering, a professor in Computational and Applied Mathematics and director of the Tapia Center for Excellence and Equity, all at Rice University. And I think it's so powerful that at that institution, not only are you tenured, not only have you given so much cariño to so many, so many students, but to have a, a center is such a major accomplishment for you and for our gente. Um, he's the recipient of the National Medal of Science, the US government's highest honored bestowed on scientists He's met several presidents and the National Science Board's Vannevar Bush Award. Again, internationally recognized accolades among many. He served on the National Science Board from 1996 to 2002 and two professional conferences have been named in his honor. The Richard Tapia Celebration of Diversity in Computing Conference and the Blackwell Tapia Mathematics Conference. He lives right here in the H and I'm so glad we stole him from Califas and he calls <laughs> H-Town su casa ahora. This is, he's from our barrio now. You started in the barrios de California. You talk about that in the stories, but you, su ombligo is buried in Califas, but aquí. He estás viviendo in Houston. Uh, another big hug, and I'm so glad that, that we can mention those awards, those centers, and those boards. Before we get into the book, which, which actually ties in, Dr. Tapia, for folks that have not heard the name of those boards, can you give them an idea of just the impact that those boards have on, on the intellectual world and the science world? Credibility. Now, Tony, what you didn't mention is National Academy of Engineering. I was the first Hispanic in the world that was appointed or say elected to the National Academy of Engineering. That's a big honor, okay? And like with the National Science Board, I'm the only 
Latino that's ever been appointed there. So the credentials that I have earned and the awards give me an entree. So for example, um, Caltech or MIT or Stanford will look at a speaker and say, we're gonna invite Richard Tapia. And they'll say without even knowing me that he can't be a turkey if he's won all these awards. So we're going to invite him. And then that gives me the opportunity to speak about things that I want to speak about, our underrepresentation, the, the lack of fair treatment on issues. And I do it in, an, in a respectable way, in an honorable way. But these awards, you know, people can't marginalize my awards. And so I have given president's lectures at Caltech. And I have given president's lectures at Berkeley and Stanford and MIT. And they see that. So when I get up to talk and introduce just the way you did, people can try to say, oh, look, there's just another Mexican or there's a, a, a Chicano or we invited him because he was this. But my credentials carry me to the point where they can't bring marginalize me. And that's really a powerful thing. When my voice is spoken, I don't speak as somebody in the community who just said, oh, by the way, I really cherish these awards. And they have given me an, they've given me an entree, an open door into places that I ordinarily wouldn't fit into. So I get a lot of requests to speak at high level things. Without those awards, I wouldn't have gotten those requests. And people would always try to, you know, say, well, you know, that's just a lucky thing that you did. Anyway, it has taken me to the greatest places. And I know that I'm recognized well. I know that. I mean, and, and I, not only do I know it, I use it and I'm proud of it. And I, you know, and I can hold my head high, like my mother taught me, you know, hold your head high and look at what, uh, what you've accomplished. And, and I do. But I don't want it to just glorify me. I want it to glorify us. I often say the statement that we as Latinos or we as Mexican-Americans, okay, that we're here, you see us all around in the city, but we're not there. And there means on the faculties of the tier one universities, you know, on the national science boards, on those places. So we're here, you see us and we're beautiful people, but we're not in the places we need to be for the leadership of this country. And that's what I want. But I'm the only member of the National Science Board. I'm the only member in the National Academy. You know, we need more people in those leadership positions. It's just like watching television and you watch MSNBC or CNN. You need to have Latino leadership as the news anchors, okay? And that's where Alicia Menendez does so well. We have to be there. Where I am tired of asking people to watch out for us, okay? Watch out for us, please, and take care of us. We have to watch out for ourselves. We have to present ourselves. We have to be in those positions. And when I was in the National Science Board, that's the issue that I always fought. Let us represent ourselves. Let us speak for ourselves and not have other people speak for us because we know ourselves best. That's what I've tried to do. So just so winning this award, Tony, was not enough for me to just say, this is nice, this is wonderful. I had an obligation, and the obligation was use them in a positive way to represent la gente. 
Well, and, and I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak, and I've seen you not just address the issues that people would expect, but also you do talk about representation. You do talk about Latinidad. You do talk about the Chicano experience. So you walk the walk and talk the talk, and I really appreciate that. And I think your book uh, is emblematic of that, and we'll be talking about that um, throughout. And I do want folks though, to understand that, um, you know, from, from our context, I think we hear other fields talking about mixed market studies, uh, being Chicanx. It's wonderful to have it come from someone in the sciences, but your book also tackles really important issues of this time that all tie in. And I do want to start off with this one point that you make that I think shows just how important these issues are right now. Um, early in the book, you say, the United States cannot maintain its economic and scientific health when a large part of its population is left out of the mainstream activities of science and engineering. You really paint a picture that this is an actual crisis for the United States. Can you break that down for us, please? Sure. Representation. It, you know, somebody could say, well, it's the right thing to do, which it is, or it's the fair thing to do, or it's the equitable thing to do. But really, it's something that is in lack of having this large group of people that say, African-Americans and domestic Hispanics in the representation of our country, in the technology, in science and engineering, it endangers the country. It isn't that it endangers the people or the discipline. It's not going to be that mathematics is going to fail if we don't have women and minorities in there or that physics is going to fail. I mean, those disciplines will go on. But the country will not be healthy without having good representation across that people. You can't say, I'm going to be able to predict your education uh, or your destiny just by the fact, by your ethnicity. So I can't say, oh, look, you're, you're Hispanic or you're this. So that means that you're not going to get to that point in education. We have to stop that. We have to say that education doesn't correlate to uh, ethnicity or, or race. That's what we have to stop. We have to say, look, the blacks, the browns, we represent a big part of the educated part of the country in science and engineering. Now, everybody says doctors and lawyers and all these and politicians, and that's fine. And, and, and indeed, I agree. But science and technology and engineering is the backbone of the United States. That's what's made us great. That's what makes us a world leader. We have to be there too. If we're not there, then we're not gonna be, it's not gonna be healthy for the people and it's not gonna be healthy for the country. So that's what I say is that we need to get into the positions of leadership and the country will suffer if big blocks of people are not there, okay? We can't have all the scientists are not black or brown, or all the engineers are not black or brown. That's not healthy for the country. That's not healthy. So, so basically, that's that's what I, I I preach. That's what we have to do. And I've been very successful uh, in 
motivating Latinos and African-Americans to go into science and to do really well with their uh, education. And I, I'm very proud of the students that I've impacted. I'm very proud. And they go off into all kinds of national leadership positions. So that's the thing that I am really probably most proud of. It says, the, my legacy, I want it to be my impact on students. Sure, I enjoy the impact and the visibility I have. Sure, I enjoy it. But I want a meaningful thing. And the meaningful thing is not to single me out, but to say, look at how many women and minorities you've impacted. I've had 38 PhD students. And of those 38, I've had 16 women. So I've directed 16 women uh, PhDs in mathematics. Okay, I don't think anybody in the country can match that. So I've made a big impact there. The same with African-American and domestic Latinos. So I've made a mark and I want to impact that and I want to show feasibility. That means I want these people to say, we can do it, we can do it. Yes, and I want to be a role model to the point that they'll say, look, Richard Tapia did it. And this is important when I say this, okay? And a lot of it, Richard Tapia is Mexican-American from the United States didn't come from Argentina, didn't come from Colombia. He was born and raised in this country. So it can be done. When I grew up as a mathematician at UCLA, I saw lots of people who were coming from Argentina, Colombia, Chile, but I wasn't identifying with them. They weren't role models for me because I was a poor Chicano from the barrio. And so I said, look, I shouldn't have to be foreign to be a successful mathematician. And there was one person, David Sanchez, who was domestic Chicano. And he made a difference in my life because I saw him as someone that I, I could relate to. He was a good role model and he's somebody that I wanted to be. That's what I want. That's what I want. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, I want, like when I talk with the students at Rice, I want them to say, that's someone like me, and I want to be like him. And that's the big issue. So it's very important that we have people like me in role model positions. Knowing that whenever I get an opportunity, I push it. I talk about it. I talk about my background. I talk about what I have to go. And I talk about how beautiful, how wonderful, how capable we are. Well, and I'd like to put those numbers into context. You've mentioned the numbers of PhDs who you've directly influenced. I think people can appreciate that's a high number, but I really want them to understand that those are amazing numbers. You, In your book, I encourage people to use your book to argue for more representation because you really thoroughly document all these points that 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 you're making that we've felt so that's one thing however to point to the current issue i say this because in the news there are reports that based on 
a mandate by Governor Abbott. I've seen reports that say that Texas A&M said that they will review their diversity programs and University of Texas at Austin will as well. You have some numbers in your book that talk about the number of uh, tenured faculty of U.S. born Latinos and U.S. born African American scholars at Texas A&M and the University of Texas at Austin. Can you share those numbers with us? Because then I think when we think about how many PhDs you've influenced, it really is, is eye-opening. The numbers are incredibly, incredibly low, okay? So what happens is that universities have fallen into the trap of calling Latino as anybody who has a Spanish surname, anybody who speaks Spanish, or anybody that came from a Latin American country. But I said earlier that the problem is we have to deal with the domestic population. That's the problem that the country has to face. That's what endangers the United States if we don't have our domestic people represented well. So one of the biggest flaws that universities do is they say, oh, we need an underrepresented minority and they bring in somebody from Colombia. They bring in somebody from Argentina. They bring in somebody from Chile. They don't understand that that's not helping to solve the problem that we are dealing with. It actually exacerbates the problem. It makes it worse because the, the people who come from Colombia, let's, let's just say Colombia, they're well-educated, they come from good schools, they tend to go to graduate education here, at, let's say Princeton or Harvard or Yale or Stanford, whatever. So they have, they didn't come from the barrios. They didn't come from poor high schools. They came from these well, uh, I mean, they come from well-supported schools in their domestic, in their, in their home countries. And then they go to graduate education here at our best. So if we have to compete, if somebody has to compete who came out of the barrios and got a PhD in the United States and not a school that is so elite, we can't compete with the foreign Latino because they have better, they've had better preparation and they had, you know, better education. But we shouldn't have to compete. If people would understand that what we're trying to do is push up the domestic and that's the people that we have to deal with. So the universities have failed in, in, in not making that distinction. And when I do that, um, I think it's a fair argument, and I think that I, I do it well. But a lot of people don't understand it. They, I mean, like a typical dean will say, oh, look, they look the same. Here's somebody from Argentina or Chile, and here's somebody from Los Angeles or Barrios. Okay? They look the same. Well, it isn't the look. It's the experiences, the life experiences, the role modeling. If I want, as I grew up in Los Angeles, I didn't see people from other countries being role models for me. I didn't see that I could follow in their footsteps. I needed somebody that was just like me. And that's where I found it, David Sanchez. So what I'm saying is that if we don't make that distinction, we're not going to make positive input on this problem. If we don't make that distinction, the, 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 we're not going to solve this underrepresentation problem of domestic things. So we have to do that. So if you stake the counts, like most universities, the count will not give you just 
they won't give you the, the domestic uh, minorities. They'll give you Latino, Hispanic, and that means everybody. So the count is really masked. You don't know that it's so small. And like in all the sciences, let's say mathematics and computer science and all these things, the percentage of faculty that is domestic born Latino or domestic black, okay, is less than 1%, it's less than 2%, okay? So Latino faculty could say, um, okay, maybe we're 7%, 8%, but it's not domestic, it's faculty from other countries. It's like the Chinese. The Chinese faculty in science and engineering at our universities is really, really a high number. Like in computer science, it could be as high as 28, 29%. But it's not domestic Chinese. It's not Chinese American. It's Chinese from China. So we don't understand the dynamics of having and taking care of our country that before we take care of the world. It's very simple. I want to take care of my family before I help my neighbors. And I will help my neighbors. And if they need help, I think that's right. But I'm not going to put my neighbors over my own familia. And that's what we don't understand in universities, that we're not taking care of our familia. And we're saying, look, this person from Latin America is going to be serve the same role as someone like Tony Diaz or Richard Topkin. Anyway, it's not true. It's not true. They're fine people. And I do do not say, I am not saying don't hire them. I'm just saying don't count them as that you've tried to solve the original problem, which foreign, foreign um, minority faculty, they don't help in solving that problem. And so this distinction, I, I get into, a lot of people criticize me on this distinction, but that's the fundamental distinction. And so universities are really going backwards. That's why in the book, when I wrote the book, I made some strong statements and I had to read it over and read over and I backed off on some of them, but enough have stayed to try to argue these points that we're not going forward. We're not improving understanding. In fact, in the book, I really make this one point. I say, our use of underrepresented minority as a category in universities is actually making the problem worse. It's actually making things, when we include foreign minorities in this category, we hire them and we don't hire the domestics. So by using the underrepresented minority, and letting the foreign minorities in that category, we actually exacerbate the problem because the, 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 um, the domestic minority is not as competitive. And yet we are competitive if you look at other factors, understanding the country, understanding how we grow. talk to somebody um, from another country I respect them and I think they're brilliant and wonderful but I always play the, the following type of a game you know let's say somebody's from Mexico 
and they're going to say, oh, yeah, this is really good. So I will ask them this. Who do you think has contributed more to the respected country? Jose Alfredo Jimenez or Hank Williams? Okay. Has Hank Williams given more to the United States in a global impact than, say, Jose Alfredo Jimenez has to Mexico? And they will say, I don't know who Hank Williams is. So then I go on, I say, how about Patsy Cline, great singer for the country, or Lola Beltran, okay? And they'll go, I don't know who Patsy Cline is. And I say to them, you are living in this country and you are serving as a role model and you don't know the country. You don't know the details of the country. So I know more about your country, which to me is a foreign country, then you know about the country that you're living in. So I want people who I can understand and speak to on these issues. And I do immediately. The relationship that I built in the, in the Chicano movement and in these other movements, they're brothers and sisters. They're brothers and sisters. We're really close. I have my own brothers and sisters and we're close. But these people that I met in the movement, in the Chicano movement, in Latino movement, we're just as close as my own siblings are. So that, that's that's what I, I that's my point. Okay, and, and um, yeah, we're not we're we're not going in the right direction, and we're confusing people. And um, we need it. That's what the book's about. The book is my view of trying to push across some points. Okay, and um, I want people to read it. I want people who care about the future of the country, people who care about improving representation. What you also do is you're breaking down how the current categories used by these large systems to supposedly address representation aren't working. And you were just articulating and, and you do it well, really well in the book too. You've got all these categories and charts where a school like University of Texas or Texas A&M or, or any institution will brag about their number of Latino students, but what they do is they lump in undergraduate students, maybe some who haven't completed. Then there's a fewer of US born Latinos and US born African-American students in graduate programs, fewer getting advanced degrees, especially in science uh, and engineering mathematics. And then on top of that, there aren't a lot of faculty at these institutions either. If you, if you go into um, math faculty at uh, UT Austin, there's one domestic Latino, okay? At A&M, there's one domestic Latino. At Rice, there's one domestic Latino. Okay, U of H has zero domestic Latinos, okay? So the numbers are zero. And I have a, a joking statement that I say. I tell people, one is not enough, okay? You would never say as you try to argue for faculty representation on women. No one would ever say, oh, we have our woman, so why don't you go and get yours? One is not enough. But that's what we seem to be doing, is we have one. So UT, we have one. A&M, we have one. Rice, we have one. And what they do is they have a lot of people from foreign countries and they count them in there. So yes, absolutely. You said it very, very well. 
I mean, you said it ex extremely well, is that, and then we have this category called Hispanic serving institutions. So if you have to be uh, 25, it just 25%, it used to be you have to be 50%. But look, UT Austin, UCLA are Hispanic serving institutions because they have 25% of their undergraduate population is Hispanic, okay, it's Latino. But what about the other issues? What about the faculty and the graduate population and the programs that they have? They're empty, they're not there. So it, you know, UT Austin and like I said, UCLA, they can't just be happy and say, oh, we're a Hispanic serving institution. Yeah, you are according to a very flawed criteria. You are according, mm -hmm. but it's no good. They're not changing. You, you don't go on there and well, let me look at the faculty. Things haven't changed. In fact, they've gotten worse on that thing. So, so you know, Tony, you say it well. That's right, and and that's 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 my battle. So this goes back to a point that you asked a little while ago. I couldn't speak out on these issues if I didn't have those credentials that you talked about. If I didn't have those credentials, they would just say Tapia is a turkey, and he's saying silly things. But when I speak out and I don't insult people, and I do believe that foreign faculty offer us a lot, I just don't want you to count all the foreign faculty as domestic underrepresented minorities. That's what I don't want you to do. I want mm -hmm. you to hire them, but hire them like you hire other faculty and don't count them as domestic underrepresented minorities. The numbers haven't gotten better. In fact, we say, keep thinking, oh, it's going to, the undergraduate population has gotten better. That's true. And, and that's a, a good step forward. Okay. And I, I talk about that in the, in the book. But um, it's interesting. Like one time years ago, I was doing some expert witness in federal court. And um, they had a minority count. And, they, and it looked like, pretty good, and, and this was a, a, a company that was being sued for discrimination. So when I came in, the first thing I said was, let's, they had, they had taken and lumped the blacks and the browns together, okay? And they said, here it is. And I said, no, let's separate them. Disaggregate the data, and let's look at the blacks, and let's look at the browns, okay? And they said, no, 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 we don't wanna do that, okay? But finally, when, I started, I, when we did that, we found out that they had a lot of blacks, but they were all sweeping the floor, okay? So they were really at the low level positions. And they had very few browns, okay? But they were in semi-skilled positions like painters and welders and stuff like that. So when you separated, you saw the blacks were not in the good jobs, okay? They were just sweeping the floor. And there weren't very many browns. There were just a few of them. And indeed they were skilled or semi-skilled and stuff. So separating the data really made a lot of difference. And we won that case. We actually had a case that went to the Supreme Court. Okay. And, and, and you had to point that out. That if you just think about it, anybody who knows is, yeah, when, when you see construction and things, you know, and, and if, you, like, if you go to, to places, workplaces, you will see that the Latinos tend to be the ones in the hospitals. That just tend to clean up the floors, but they're not the nurses that we need. Okay, and and so, 
anyway, that's that's what I pointed out. And so it's very easy for these people to hide and mask the numbers. They just they, and they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Now, if I said that, if I picked on Rice and said, do our dean and our administration know that the way they're counting underrepresented minorities is is not um, is not correct? It's not right. They will say, yeah, 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 yeah. But then they'll defend, they'll rationalize and say, but no, this is the way everybody's doing it, and 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 this is the way we should be doing it. But the counting is flawed. It's flawed. It's flawed. Well, and I think what's powerful about your book is that it takes someone that understands profoundly how logic is built off of uh, numbers, statistics to detect that and to share that. So I think I use your handbook. I use your book as a handbook to pierce through some of that. I also what I also really enjoyed about your book is when you talk about your own life and I tie it back into community cultural capital. So I want our listeners to know that um, do not take Dr. Tapia for granted. He is a world-class genius in mind. And he's a down vato. He's a down vato because he's from the barrio. He's Chicano. He rolls up his sleeves. This is not what elite professors are supposed to do or expect to do. And here's, here's, what, here's how that ties in to helping our community that is único to U.S. Latinos. And here's how Chicanos roll. I'm going to read two excerpts and I want you to talk about it. I'm going to call this community cultural capital. And this is all about your argument that says, hey, we are going to help our folks, our terms and our terms. Let me read the excerpts to you. The first passage, I traveled all over South Texas to try to recruit students to Rice University. The biggest hindrance was high school counselors. They believe that their Mexican-American students, me, were not good enough for Rice and would only let me meet with their white students. To get around this ob obstacle, I would meet with minority students anywhere I could, especially in churches. And I'm sorry, if you're not a Delvato, if you don't speak, not, and not just Spanish, they're not going to let you hang out in the church. You got to come in talking like a Chicano, like a Tejano. And let me read one more excerpt and I'll throw it back to you. A few, a few passages later, you say, because of my experience as a minority student and minority faculty member, I had a deep understanding of these candidates' backgrounds and chances of success. Break it down, Dr. Tapia. Low expectations. Even, you know, my home institution here at Rice, okay? I did a survey with the faculty and... I asked them good questions about, about minority students. But the one that I really want to uh, uh, single out is, do you think, as a faculty member in science and engineering and rights, do you think that minority students have talent? 6% out of 100, 6% said yes. That means 94% said no, no, they don't have the talent. 
And it's that low expectations. I've, you know, people have had low expectations of me, okay? But I just show them. My mother was really strong about that. We're going to show them. Okay, we're going to show them. And, you know, and I have a, a, a sister that went to Stanford and a brother that went to Yale and I went to UCLA. And so my mother, who did not go to high school, instilled in us this desire to show in terms of education that we do and we can. Okay. So, so that's really, really important is that um, the low expectations. Now, some years back, I was invited to give a talk at Los Alamos National Lab. Okay, this is a really cool place. So I drove in and the driver, I came in by, by taxi, but a driver from Los Alamos National Labs picked me up and he looked at me and he said, where do I take you? Are you going to be in the landscaping part of, the, uh, of, of Los Alamos or are you gonna be in the kitchen? So he just said, look, you look like this Latino. So you're either gonna be in the kitchen or in the yard, okay? And I said to him, I, I didn't get upset. I, I just kind of laughed and smiled. I said, no, I'm actually giving a talk at the, in the math session, okay? And he said, oh, oh, okay. But it's that expectation, okay? And if you keep doing that enough, and you keep doing that enough, like people always do at Rice, they say, oh, you're a Rice professor, okay? Now they want to marginalize me. They say, ah, do you have tenure? I said 1972, okay? <laughs> 1972. And then they say, well, are you a full professor? 1976, okay? And I said, I'm a university professor there. It's a special title. There's only been 10 of them in the whole history of Rice. And, and they can't, they can't. They kind of want to bring me down and bring me down. And I, I hold my head high, even with my own faculty. And I'll say, look, I've done all these wonderful things and I don't have to remind you of it because you know it, okay? But that makes me very, very, very proud. But they'll, the neighbors and the people in the neighborhood, they'll look at me and they'll go, hey, you have tenure, you have this, you have that. And I just smile and I say, yes, I do. And then eventually what they do is they get to the point and they say, oh, okay, well, you're not typical, you're an exception, okay? Fine, mm -hmm. okay? I'm gonna, but low expectations. And if you keep low expectations, if all your life, when you grow up, all my life I was told, in high school, the counselors would say, you shouldn't be in mathematics. I was the best school. I was the best math student in the whole school. And yet the counselor would say, no, you should be in landscaping or you should be in this. And I was the best student in school. They didn't push me. So I just learned not to listen to counselors and push myself. And that's what I did. And, and at UCLA. So once I got into the, the, the big machines, everybody said, that's fine. Once I got into graduate school, people didn't care about your ethnicity or, or, or your race. It's just, can you do the work? And so once I got in there at UCLA, I showed them, yeah, I can do the work. And when I was at Stanford or when I was at Wisconsin, yeah, I can do the work. The, the, the faculty, I didn't find racism among the senior faculty, okay? I just found lower expectations among the junior uh, uh, faculty. But yeah, if you keep telling somebody all their life, you don't belong, you don't belong, you don't belong, you don't, the people like you, don't, and that's what happens with women when people say, no, you don't belong in mathematics, you don't belong in mathematics. The first time you fail, 
you say, maybe they were right. Maybe they were right. I don't remember. So a big part of my job is dealing with students who fail. And I tell them, you do belong. You do belong. All of us on the, on the on one side, okay? On the left side, I can put a piece of paper that says, all my successes. And on the right side, I put all my failures. And both have a lot. But I don't have to tell people about the failures. I tell them about the successes. And they go, wow, look at all your successes. And I say, yeah. But I could tell you a lot about failures. And I could tell you a lot about adversity. Tony, you know that I've gone through a lot of adversity and things. Okay, So people have preconceived ideas of people and of women in particular in, in, in mathematics. Okay, And that really, when it gets really tough and you have to really bite the bullet and you have to go, you need everybody believing in you. some people over for dinner I had 10 students over for dinner uh, last Saturday night was my birthday and they were students they weren't faculty and my mission was to convince them to believe in themselves believe in yourself. so I had five women and five men okay and they weren't uh, minority but they were and my job was confidence believe in yourself if you don't have confidence and you don't believe in yourself, you're not gonna go anywhere. That's what I learned from my mother, to have confidence, okay? And to believe in myself. And I'm Mexicano. I mean, you know, the Cubanos have it. I mean, the, the Cubanos are taught it, okay? So my mother, I had a, a very dear friend who was Cuban, and I told him, well, my mother said that we are as good as anybody. And he said, well, my mother told me we're better than everybody. <laughs> Yeah, And by the way, I love how you write about that in the book. You do write about having students over for parties. You talk, you talk about um, specific moments where gifted students ran into what you just mentioned. You do talk about um, having to instill in, in our, our youth some of those components. And I'd like you to close us out with, um, with reading a passage that you picked for us from your book. And, and the book... Gotta say the name. I haven't said it enough times. Losing the precious few while America fails to educate its minorities in science and engineering, published by Arte Publico Press, the Houston, Texas. Fantastic read. Again, I'm using it as a handbook for a lot of my arguments. This, this, this is great. So from chapter one, I have the world of the precious few. Who are the precious fews? Okay. Ensuring the health of the nation requires that we improve the representation of domestic minority groups in STEM education. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Included among those born and raised in the United States groups are Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, and Pacific Islanders. All are critically underrepresented in STEM. 
Hence, I refer to these groups as STEM underrepresented minorities or simply underrepresented minorities with STEM being implied. It should be noted that our definition of underrepresented minority is not arbitrary, but follows from meaningful guidelines. It are these people that are truly underrepresented in the country. So the underrepresented minority with an interest in STEM are what I call the precious few. Those are the precious few. Those that start out liking science, that start out liking mathematics, that start out liking in engineering, and somewhere along the line, they are sidetracked. Concerning the underrepresented minority's lack of involvement in science and engineering, I am known for the following words that I hope you will embrace. The United States cannot maintain its economic and scientific health when such a large part of its population is left out of the mainstream activity of science and engineering. The United States will not have racial justice without educational justice. And we will not have educational justice without educational integration. Underrepresented minorities must be equitably re, re, uh, represented at all universities, including our top universities. We can't just be at the bottom universities. I believe that the best way to view STEM underrepresentation is as a phenomenon that endangers the health of the nation far more than it endangers the health of the various scientific disciplines. No, no one seriously doubts the value of members of the faculty who are foreigners. They contribute tremendously to scientific advance and to education, not only because um, of their expertise, but also because of the international understanding and context they bring to, uh, to our students and the faculty. But it is completely unfair to expect international faculty to understand the background and needs of underrepresented minority students or the dynamics of minority majority culture and politics in the United States. Most have no idea about the social and economic environment and the workings of inner city schools where so many underrepresented minorities were raised and educated. They have no idea what it's like to be told your entire life that you do not belong and that you are different and yet you are deficient. They cannot tell the differences between students from poor and disadvantaged backgrounds and those who were privileged in foreign countries. They therefore do not have the background to serve as complete role models or strong advocates for domestic minorities. It is ironic that the classification underrepresented minority, which was cre created to improve the hiring of domestic Latinos and African-Americans uh, faculty actually works against their hiring. I am convinced that we would be better off today with no such classification. I propose that we hire prospective faculty from Africa and Latin America as we would any other faculty, but and not consider or count them as underrepresented minorities. These issues will be discussed with further details in the course of the book. One of the things that bothers me very much is that professors will take a minority student who is not well prepared and they will say, they will not make the distinction between not being well prepared and not having talent. And they will assume that this student who is not prepared does not have talent and essentially push them out of the area. And that's what happens at schools, at elite schools like Rice. The professors assume the student is not capable of doing this. And it's not, they don't say it's because of preparation. They say it's because of their minority background. We have to fight that.
That's fantastic. That is a passage from the powerful book, Losing the Precious Few, How America Falls Its Minorities in Science and Engineering by Professor Richard Tapia, a dear friend, but a real, real hero who's really blazed the trail and left a great legacy. Um, I look forward to talking to you again. We're going to have you back just to talk about uh, Chicanidad. But uh, Dr. Tapia, thank you for all that you do. This book comes at a powerful moment, and I think this is going to accelerate the work that you've been doing. So thank you so much for taking the time for joining us. Tony, look at the picture on the cover, okay? You know, it's beautiful me with long hair from 1972, okay? <laughs> oh, the 70s were so beautiful. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And we stick together. Speaking of sticking together, I get I got to give a shout out to my team. I want to thank Roxena Guzman, who is our multi-platform producer, Rodrigo Bravo, who is our sound engineer, Liana Lopez, who's our coordinator, Brian Paras, who is high-tech Aztec Emeritus, Lupa Mendez, who is helping with our reading series and is Texas Poet Laureate, Laura Costa, who is now an educational consultant, but one of the founders of Libertaficante movement, and to all the Libertaficantes throughout Houston, Texas, and the nation. Appreciate you tuning in. This is Tony Diaz, the Libertaficante, author of The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. And if you are listening on 90.1 FM KPFT, keep in mind that KPFT, Houston's community station, is supported by listeners like you. So we hope that you can make a donation to kpft.org in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, because where else are we? you're going to get awesome conversations with intellectuals who pierce the wall of the ivory tower and come into the community like Richard Tapia. Thank you once again, Richard, for all that you do. Can we have you back just to talk about Chicanidad and, and your rock and roll music? Of course, and in fact, I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to make a contribution because I've enjoyed it so much. So I'm going to make a contribution to that, that means so much. Thank you. Thank you, my dear friend, and thank you for changing the world. Hey, this has been Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Gracias. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.